Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How can human ingenuity help us cope with life in a hot and crowded world? Climate One Conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Today's program is generously underwritten by ClimateWorks Foundation and RBC Wealth Management. John Brown started working for British Petroleum as a college student in 1966 and served as CEO from 1995 to 2007. He engineered a $48 billion merger with American oil giant Amoco that vaulted BP into third place globally. A few years later, BP signaled a transition away from fossil fuels with a major rebranding campaign. Beyond darkness, light. Beyond petroleum, BP. But aggressive cost-cutting sowed the seeds of disaster. April 20th, an explosion on the Deepwater Horizon oil rig kills 11 workers. 5,000 feet beneath the surface of the Gulf of Mexico, crude oil spews from a well 13,000 feet under the seabed. Brown was no longer with BP at the time of the Deepwater Horizon debacle, but industry insiders say he created a corporate culture and safety practices that increased the likelihood of such an event. Growing up, Brown spent time in southern Iran, where his father worked for the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which later became BP. As an adult, he wrote that his youth was, quote, surrounded by oil and its awe-inspiring industry. I had resolved, like many sons, never to do the same thing as my father. And then you end up doing sort of the same thing, although very differently. My father was a professional soldier and an Arabist uh, and uh, was uh, in, the, in the desert uh, fighting and had a very distinguished war. But of course, he stayed on afterwards because he was a professional and his role was to close down uh, the empire. He mm. basically went round closing down bases and things like that. Uh, but uh, at the end of all this, he decided to go back to the Middle East. He loved it. My grandfather loved it too. Uh, and uh, so he joined the Anglo-Persian oil company, Anglo-Iranian oil company, uh, and they said, you must go to Iran. And he said, well, actually, they don't speak Arabic there. Right? They speak Farsi, but I'll learn it in six months, which is what he did. And so I would visit for school holidays not all of them, because air travel in those days was monstrously expensive, <laughs> very difficult to do. Uh, a journey from London to Abadan, where I flew in, would take uh, two days. Uh, and uh, the cost was gigantic. It was very, very 
difficult thing to do. So I went out twice a year, sometimes only once, uh, and spent uh, mostly summers there looking at uh, what was going on in the oil industry. It was, uh, for a, a young, young person, it was intriguing. And you joined BP in 1966 and were there for, what, 40, 40 years, I guess? And I was. I, I, kept, I kept saying to myself, now's the time to leave. And every time I did, somehow someone said, here's a more interesting job to do. And the central thesis of, uh, you know, of, of your book is you know, engineering and, and innovation drive the human enterprise. You start with you know, looking at fire and agriculture. So what is the central thesis about how engineering and innovation have sort of shaped human history? Well, I, I, I've um, spent uh, half my life uh, really looking at uh, different forms of artistic culture, performance art, a whole variety of things like that, literature. And I speak to people who say, this is the basis of civilization. And I always worried about this statement because I think without something to build on, it's very difficult to see how you could build great art, how you could build great buildings, how you could create great plays. And the foundation of all that is the foundation of engineering, starting you know, with the hand axe, which allowed... Uh, humans to change their diet and therefore develop very significantly right through to some wondrous piece of equipment today, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope, which uh, is going to be launched next year. Uh, and it's going to go to a place called the second Lagrangian point, which is a million miles away from Earth. And it's going to sit there. And when it's unfolded, it unfolds like a great big umbrella. Uh, it's going to look further in the distance than we've ever seen before, which means we're going, to, we're going to see closer to the beginning of time. And I think those two things, to my mind, bookend the engineering platform upon which all civilization is built. Uh, and I thought that people didn't really give it credit. They looked at the downside, not the upside. Uh, everything that engineering does has two faces, uh, and uh, I wanted to discuss that. And I wanted to redefine engineering as well as the piece that sits between the amazing fruits of discovery, the laboratory, if you will, uh, and humanity and the commerce and the market on the other end. Uh, and in between, there's this Janus-faced thing called engineering, looking both ways, and in between, it makes these amazing transformations. And you write about how technology should be a servant, not a master. Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that we're not servants of the technology? Well, because I think in the end, we, we do invent it. And we never really let it get out of hand. Uh, we almost did from time to time. You've seen 2001 Space Odyssey? Oh, yes. <laughs> but that, I think, was a very good way of telling people what they should do to stop it <laughs> getting out of hand. Uh, and, we've, and the reason we, we allow it not to get out of hand is, first, uh, we are humans, so we don't normally let ourselves be destroyed. And secondly, we are ingenious. So we can, uh, you know, the, the hallmark of the human is imagination and ingenuity. Uh, and therefore, we, do, we invent things that counter, counteract the bad side of engineering.
A lot of times technology is thought to democratize information. I was a reporter when the World Wide Web came about and thought, okay, there were these mainframes and now people have desktop computers and then it would democratize, the internet would democratize information. Yet we've seen really the internet is driven by about four or five really powerful companies. And so you write a little bit about yeah. democratizing technology can democratize things and make them accessible. But it seems like over time, powerful interests have a way of grabbing those things back. Well, and our behavior as well. I, I agree with that, and I think we have to worry about how and how these uh, big, important, common assets, these are the public assets, how they are really controlled and used. Interestingly, I, I remember going to a meeting, being addressed, I was, I was very young, I, but I was born before time began, uh, and uh, I was listening to a great Nobel laureate called Arno Penzias early on in the internet. And he said, this, uh, this system will balkanize the world. It will not democratize the world. He said, it will be too easy for people with common interests to get together and their common interests will be reinforced and that will not be expanded. Uh, and I thought, what a load of rubbish. Uh, but actually, he's exactly right. Because uh, I thought it would open everything up and everyone would talk about everything, uh, but quite the reverse. Uh, and we see, you know, really bad actors coming together uh, on uh, really global communication devices to plot and plan bad things, uh, as well as people who are just excited about collecting, as I collect, uh, glass elephants, you know. But that would be another extreme in balkanizing. Uh, the internet. There's a quote going around where David Bowie kind of says something very similar. Um, you write that cities are the most stable uh, feature of civilization, you know, outlasting nation states. So how are, you know, in, in our political world, you know, there's a lot of tension between nations. Cities, certainly in climate, is where you know, mayors have to deliver. Yes. They have to get pick up the trash or they have to deliver services to people. Or they, so tell us about sort of the, the importance of cities, particularly as we enter this climate uncertain world. So in my book, I wrote about cities because of the failures of cities as well as the successes. And what we were doing today, would we make cities which were, which were biased to success in the future or we, would we make them inhuman and impossible to survive? So the lessons from the past are, I think, obvious but worth restating is that any city that's built without reflecting the way in which it is provided, the way in which it deals with its environment, doesn't work. So I went to see all these. One of the things I did with this book, I, I decided I'd go and ask to see all sorts of very extraordinary uh, a, a, achievers in, in all the fields I was writing about, because I was writing about my personal experience in many fields, but I wanted to have a conversation with people and invite the reader into a conversation they might not otherwise have. So I went to see all these great architects and almost to a person, to a woman and a man, they said, there's a real problem. We don't understand how to build modern cities anymore. We tend to mess it up. We tend to think that the, the system is far more important than the occupants. Mm. And we build things which are too tall, too big, without regard to the way in which they interface with the world and we've got these different ideas. None of these different ideas have really taken up. And yet we have now 55% of the world in cities, 
and the proportion growing. Yeah, there's an architect in, uh, famous for Copenhagen, Jan Gale, who has a whole movement about building cities for people rather yes. than cars and, and other things. You spend a lot of your time uh, in Venice uh, on an old palace, top floor of an old palace. Uh, of the cities threatened by climate change, Venice has to be up there. So how do you feel about living in Venice in a world of rising seas? Well, we're just going to stop the seas rising. Okay. Uh, so there are two things that are going to happen. One is uh, we're, we're, Venice is building a barrage uh, called Project Moses to divide the sea. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it will be eventually built. Oh, what's the cost? Uh, huge. Uh, it's uh, about 7 billion euros. Mm. Uh, it's estimated that about 10% uh, of that has disappeared through corruption. Uh, and people are now trying to chase that, but it's uh, the horses, I'm afraid, bolted from the stable in that regard. Uh, the rest, I think, is complexity of engineering. It is a, a very interesting challenge, but one which needs to be done. And I think even with sea level rise, it will keep uh, uh, Venice for the world uh, for quite a long time longer. One more question on kind of innovation and design. There's the idea of biomimicry, which is the idea of nature-inspired design. Uh, nature has had about six billion years of R&D. Um, do you think of what you, you know? Can we look to nature to help us design a world that's more resilient? Because nature, after all, is the most resilient system. Absolutely, uh, and I think a lot of research is being done to go backwards and look at ancient DNA to see what we can learn about how the environment has actually affected the DNA of uh, humans. Mm. In fact, I know this firsthand at the Crick, we have uh, an amazing uh, man uh, doing just that, uh, looking at ancient DNA, reconstructing it, because bits are occasionally missing, uh, and then seeing what, what you can learn about today and how the environment is affecting the human has affected the human in the past and therefore by inference today. Uh, it's one minor uh, thing to answer your question. When I was giving a presentation at the Crick on my book, uh, one of the group leaders got up and said, this surely can't be right. Progress cannot carry on. He said, I st let me tell you about E. coli. You know, when you put E. coli in a, in a dish, give it nutrient, it grows like mad, uh, until it's eaten all the nutrients, and then it dies. Uh, so he said, that's my model of the world. I found that very depressing. Uh, and, uh, but the, the main point is that humans are not bacteria. We are not bacteria. We are able to change course. We really are able to change course. And with the right leadership, we can get amazing things done, not simply eat ourselves to death. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about engineering the future with the former CEO of British Petroleum, John Brown. Coming up, we'll hear what happened when BP began moving its energy business beyond petroleum. The American Petroleum Institute, which I never had a really very great relationship with, uh, told me that uh, I had left the church and uh, that they were going to fight uh, what uh, BP was doing. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking with John Brown, former CEO of BP and author most recently of Make, Think, Imagine, Engineering the Future of Civilization. 
Oil industry executives often say that the science of climate change emerged gradually in recent years. But historian Ben Franta found evidence in an obscure archive of the American Petroleum Institute that the science was presented to fossil fuel executives much earlier. He discovered a transcript of a warning about carbon emissions given at the centennial celebration of the American oil industry. The year, 1959. The messenger, Edward Teller, one of the most eminent scientists of the 20th century and a key figure in the Manhattan Project. Here's a reading of Teller's warning to industry leaders about continuing their business as usual. But I would like to mention another reason why we probably have to look for additional fuel supplies. And this strangely is the question of contaminating the atmosphere. When you burn conventional fuel, you create carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide is invisible. It is transparent. You can't smell it. It's not dangerous to health. So why should one worry about it? It has been calculated that a temperature rise corresponding to a 10% increase in carbon dioxide will be sufficient to melt the ice cap and submerge New York. All the coastal cities would be covered, and since a considerable percentage of the human race lives in coastal regions, I think that this chemical contamination is more serious than most people tend to believe. Physicist Edward Teller, father of the hydrogen bomb, issuing a warning about carbon emissions to leaders of the oil industry in 1959. John Brown, that was a few years before you joined BP. You know, the, the industry knew. There's a grand elder of, of modern science saying, look out. No, no doubt, as we subsequently found out. I was very struck by... Uh, when, when I became CEO of BP, uh, I began to read a lot of what had been done on climate change and what people had said. It took a little while to get everyone uh, around a table, but uh, by 1997, I was convinced that something had to be done, uh, and I determined, therefore, and I managed to align people inside BP, uh, that BP would do something about it. So I gave a speech at my alma mater at uh, Stanford where I said that the oil industry was accountable for these emissions. We had to do something about it. And I laid out a plan with targets and with measures uh, which BP followed. One, to control our own emissions. Two, to fund continuing scientific research. Three, to take initiatives for joint implementation, and four, to develop alternative fuels for the long term. Uh, not all of it worked, but the company did follow it for the period I was there. And uh, you also went from British Petroleum to Beyond Petroleum. Was that, you know, some people say that was greenwashing. Some people say that there was real investment. No, no it wasn't greenwashing. It was actually a change in mindset, first of all, uh, when, when you change mindset, you change behavior, and you also change the makeup of the people who are the team inside BP. So we found very different people wanting to join us. Now, did we pick the right renewable technologies to invest in? Probably not. You know, probably the wrong wind turbine, as we now see in retrospect. Uh, and BP was still in the business of making solar panels. We didn't outsource that to China, but we were trying to make solar farms with panels that we were making. 
And then we went into biofuels and we went into methane reduction. We had very strong targets to get rid of methane emissions. And we started an internal carbon trading system, which was one of the first. What percentage of capital expenditure went to green versus traditional brown sources of energy? Because some people uh, say that's the real measure. Is where's it the, is. Where's uh, the and I think we were spending approximately uh, five, uh, probably eight percent of our capex at the time. That's high. I've heard you know companies these days if they say, well, it's around one. <laughs> well, uh, some of them are around. I've just recently actually just looked at these numbers, <laughs> and, and they are very variable. But uh, I think three to seven is probably the range that the big companies are spending. So the top seven oil and gas companies, uh, the other companies spending nothing, zero. And what was the reaction of the industry when you stood up and stood out in 1997? Well, it was a, a very big surprise. The American Petroleum Institute, which I'd never had a really very great relationship with, uh, told me that uh, I had left the church. Uh, and I didn't even know, know that I was a member of it, uh, but I'd left the church and uh, that they were going to fight uh, what uh, BP was doing. Uh, they were still pr promoting uh, a position that uh, climate change really didn't exist. You know, that uh, actually there's reasonable doubt, all that sort of thing. And in any way, it's about how people consume uh, fuels, it's not about how you produce them. I mean, very early on, reminiscent, and perhaps still today, reminiscent of people who said in tobacco industry, we just provide the tobacco and make the cigarettes. We don't actually smoke them. And that was meant to be a defense. In, in oil industry, people get really um, uncomfortable when they make that tobacco connection. Um, Exxon's on trial in New York and soon in, in Massachusetts for, for deceiving investors and deceiving the public. What's your view on holding companies accountable for the deception you just acknowledged? Well, it depends whether it was deception, whether they genuinely believed it or not, uh, uh, and what uh, the consequences were. But I think uh, misreporting is a very bad thing if they really did misreport then uh, something needs to be done. There's no doubt about that. Do you think there will be stranded assets that, you know, uh, some people would say that if you b we burn all the carbon that's on the balance sheet of the oil companies today, civilization will go way past two, three, four degrees. So there's, there, you know, the oil companies' balance sheets are in conflict with civilization. Well, I, I think if we... I think we need to be very careful about oil companies for a moment. I'm, I'm agreeing the state with oil companies. That's the point. Yeah. So the companies that we see today and everyone talks about uh, probably produce between 15 and 20% of the world's oil, these great big companies. Who really produces the oil are all the state companies, and there's a lot of them. And that's where... China, so Saudi Arabia, Remember Russia. that the balance sheet is everybody. Now, uh, I, you know, I really do firmly believe we will still need hydrocarbons for a very long time, oil and gas in particular, and probably the demand for oil and gas in 20 years' time will be similar to today. It'll be a smaller portion of the energy system. So uh, some of it will be produced. It cannot be produced without decarbonizing it. We have to be able to take out the carbon post-combustion, or take out the carbon pre-combustion. 
by converting, for example, gas to uh, hydrogen and carbon dioxide, which is easy to do. It's just expensive. So I think there is no, it is impossible, I think, to replace all of this with the right number of calories from other sources. Uh, and so I think we have a brick of this. Who produces it? It all depends. It could all be produced by the state companies with the big companies uh, leaving the scene. That's very possible. I think that would be undesirable because there are no people you could control directly and no people you could push to actually do something different in this industry and potentially become a role model. If you're just joining us at Climate One today, we're talking with John Brown, former BP CEO. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, what do you think about divest and invest? A lot of colleges these days, pension funds, there's a lot of money sort of saying we're not going to invest in fossil fuels. Critics say, well, that just makes it cheaper. If you sell Exxon, then it makes it cheaper to buy someone else. What do you think about divest and invest? Well, it may not have the impact that people want. It does send a big signal. It sends a signal of dissatisfaction, which people have to read. Uh, and in fact, the uh, percentage of the S&P 500 represented by oil and gas uh, has not been so low for 30 years. So it, it's going down for sure. They're starting to underperform. They're starting to, and their percentage is, uh, underperformance is two things. One, I think just not very good investments, frankly. They haven't been run very well. Uh, and secondly, uh, people are concerned about, the correctly concerned, about the impact on the environment. I think they really want to see something substantive done about this by the oil industry in order to revive any confidence at all in that industry, which is sadly lacking. But as you mentioned earlier, you know, oil companies or all companies are sensitive to a social license to operate. Does divest sort of challenge the, the social license to operate? Yes, it does. Of course it does, much as protest does, much as uh, you know, people saying, uh, making speeches at AGMs. What it doesn't do is probably prevent the production of oil and gas. It simply shifts it elsewhere. So if the, if the result is signaling, absolutely. If the result is something more physical, probably it will not achieve its ends, and it may achieve the wrong thing. There may be unintended consequences at the extreme if you push all the production into the hands of the state oil companies, I think you have done the wrong thing because there you have a very different set of actors with very different objective functions. You are involved with a, a, a company that has planned IPO uh, uh, next year where you're involved with a, a Russian billionaire oil, oil uh, baron. So you're talking about the decline of uh, fossil fuels, but you're also betting on it, so backing an IPO of, a, of an oil company. Help us understand that. Well, I, I've done, you know, I spent uh, a decade doing renewable energy uh, between BP and then, and then I thought I'd try and, you know, create for these people uh, a gas and oil company in that order uh, and uh, make it uh, perform well. Uh, it will look after its carbon uh, and it will take steps to make sure that it becomes effectively carbon neutral at a time yet to be determined. It's a company's only been put together for six months, so it needs to figure out what it's going to do. But there has to be a time, in my view, when companies say, we're at least, at least going to get rid of half the carbon we, we produce. 
and set a time for that. There's something called the social cost of carbon that has been debated about, you know, what do you think is, is the social cost of carbon? That is the cost, we're sitting here in California, there's wildfires all over, people are having their power shut out, lives are being destroyed, hurricanes everywhere. What is the social cost of carbon and what is the oil company's relationship to that social cost? So I think the social cost is, uh, it, it, it cannot be calculated, it can be observed. It can be observed. There's a plenty of things which are short and long-term consequences, health being uh, a longer-term consequence, wildfires being, if they are related, I expect they are, uh, but people will disagree with that, uh, then there clearly can be a cost for that. So the oil companies have a share of that, but, but a share that they need, I think, to look at in a rather different way. I don't know how to ascribe legal accountability, and I'm not a lawyer, and I don't want to go there. Some, some cases no are trying idea yeah. how to do that. I come back to, uh, as a businessman, saying what is so necessary now is to reduce the carbon so that, uh, first, progress can continue, so we don't go backwards by affecting health and well-being, so pro progress can go forward, and business has to do that. In other words, the oil and gas companies have to do that. They have to contribute by reducing or, or eliminating eventually uh, the carbon that they produce. They're not going to do that voluntarily. And a lot of no. oil companies say they support a price on carbon and their websites and their CEOs, but they are part of the American Petroleum Institute that spends millions of dollars trying to, you know, Put a Look, dagger I, in the heart I, of that. I know America is really very important, but there is the most of the world. I like to think of it's most of the world. It's outside. So let's just uh, separate the two if we can. There are <laughs> some, some people are trying right now, uh, yes. <laughs> well, unfortunately, they might succeed, mm. uh, and that won't be good either. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there are... I, I, actually, I think when I look at this, I think what is going on in Europe, which is a much more powerful push to do something about carbon and force companies to be involved in that is something which I think has a habit of radiating out. You can't just say, well, these crazy Europeans, they know what they're doing. Actually, they do know what they're doing and they are trying to do something sensible. And so when I visit here in the US, even Houston, I begin to see people saying, this is influencing the way I'm planning. Certainly in New York, it's that way. Mm -hmm. I expect it is. Well, I know it is here. I speak to people here. So I think you can't separate influences from one from the other around the world. And this is going to affect the way people think. I repeat again, I'm confident Europe's going to do something practical about this. But will it be fast enough? Kids are scared. This ten, there's a debate about this 10-year deadline. I think that's a bit artificial. It's not like that, 9 is great and 11 is horrible at the end, but you know, is it happening fast enough? No. I mean, it, we, we should have started a quarter of a century ago, half a century ago. Uh, but uh, we are where we are, so we've got to figure out now how we can accelerate uh, the process uh, of keeping carbon out of the system. It doesn't mean to say we end fossil fuels. It means we end the carbon coming out of those uh, fuels and we develop 
other ways of creating energy. And there are plenty of other enhancements we can make with the existing stack of energy uh, uh, supply productions, uh, supply options. And there are plenty of things we can do as well, I think, to reduce demand. Steve Cole, who's the dean of the journalism school at Columbia, wrote a book called Private Empire about Exxon, really good book about Exxon after Valdez. And he said the one thing that could really break the business model is a big breakthrough in the energy density of batteries and electric cars. Are electric cars a threat to, to the, they really significantly reduce the demand for oil? They'll certainly, if, if they were very widespread, absolutely. I mean, light vehicles, take about 17% of oil, I think it is. So that's quite a big deal. Uh, there needs to be a breakthrough, primarily also on cost. The price of an EV is very high. It's a luxury good in some ways. So a lot needs to be done to batteries. I think people have got over the idea that uh, electric cars only go 10 miles. They go much longer than that. But now people are worried about, can I resell an electric car uh, because uh, the batteries have a low lifetime. So we need to work on lifetime and energy density and the general uh, cost of car EVs uh, by making more of them and pricing down the learning curve. Do you own any electric cars? I do. I recently bought, actually my second, uh, and I recently bought a... a so I'm now going to advertise for a, a producer, uh, a Golf EV. Uh, and I was struck. It's, I did that because the chassis and everything is well tried and tested. So if you're going to change everything, as an engineer, I say, change one thing at a time, have everything else tried and tested, and you can see, have a higher chance of it all working. So uh, I, I did this. All I would say is you can do a price comparison between a gasoline one, an electric one, and it's shocking. It's well, shocking. The operating cost is a lot less for electric. There's That's no true, oil but chain. you need the money up front. I, I, I'm, I'm fine, I'm prepared to do that, but uh, you, you need the money up front. I want to drive my car. I want to drive my car. You're listening to a conversation with the former CEO of British Petroleum, John Brown. This is Climate One. Coming up, dealing with disaster. BP uh, had some very bad uh, uh, incidents. The one that happened in my watch was a human tragedy above everything else. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the future of energy with John Brown former CEO of British Petroleum and author of Make, Think, Imagine, Engineering the Future of Civilization. John Hoffmeister is former president of Shell Oil. We asked him to assess John Brown's legacy and specifically BP's 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil debacle in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm glad to know that John Brown is speaking at Climate One. He has great perspectives on the future and he was instrumental in the industry's movement towards the energy transition during his tenure of leadership in which he started transitioning BP into other alternative forms of energy such as solar, wind, and so on. Now on the downside, under John Brown's leadership, the name BP 
became known in the industry in a rather vulgar sense as best price, where the concentration by John Brown and his executives on cost came to front the future with how negotiations took place on costs, investments, safety procedures, and so on. And BP ran through a litany of incidences, all of which had to do with not spending the money that needed to be spent to do things in proper form. The disaster of the Deepwater Horizon drilling ship and the BP-owned Macondo well never had to happen. This was a man-made incident that was rushed because it was costing a lot of money to keep the rig out there, and it was way over budget, and the pressure was unrelenting. Uh, there are environmental implications for every single form of energy that's out there. But my starting premise is the world of the 21st century needs more, not less energy. Full stop. Even in the future, when all personal cars are electrified, there will still be uses of oil and natural gas because that's such an available, reliable, affordable form of energy. That was John Hoffmeister, former Shell Oil president and founder and CEO of Citizens for Affordable Energy. John Brownson, your reaction to those words from a former fellow oil, oil man? So, uh, first of all, uh, the facts uh, speak to themselves. Uh, BP uh, had some very bad uh, uh, incidents uh, uh, under, in my watch. Texas City and... Not the, Gulf, not the deep water. I'd gone right. almost four years uh, before that. But people would say the cost-cutting that you drove set in motion some of the things that... They can say whatever they want. Uh, and I'm not prepared to disagree or agree with them. What I would say is the one that happened in my watch, which is Texas City, the explosion, I will never forget. It was a human tragedy above everything else. Fifteen people killed. Fifteen people killed. Uh, I was there when the last body was recovered. Uh, I did not uh, flinch at saying we were fully accountable for it. Uh, we therefore solved as much as we could with money very quickly, and we learned a lot of lessons, uh, which I had firmly believed we began, uh, we began to apply. Um, I don't think it's all about cost-cutting. I think it's about the mentality and the culture to make sure that we really thought about what we were doing as part of a big system, not just the safety of individuals, but the safety of individuals with machines and machines by themselves. So it's more than just cost-cutting. I think that is an easy thing uh, to say, and I don't think it fully came out, certainly not in the Texas City incident, uh, as the result of it. 
There's parallel stories I've seen between BP, uh, VW, and some others where companies try to get into the, the top tier. You took BP with sort of a second tier, aggressive mergers, grew it dramatically, and, and that growth and scale creates some problems. VW was kind of a second tier automaker. They wanted to be number one, and they became number one, and the cost was Dieselgate and deception. Uh, and so there's, you know, is that fair to say that sometimes these companies lose sight of their values as they try to get to the top and grow at all costs? I think what, uh, maybe, uh, I, I don't think you can cut it one way or the other definitively. I think there's much more complexity in the reasons. Uh, but I do think that one thing that happens is when you build cultures from different groups of people, you have to be very clear that you're attending to everything in the same way across the whole organization and things don't fall out between the cracks. For example, in Texas City, not everyone knew how to deal with the pieces of equipment needed to be handled. This is the particular incident that happened. And secondly, they were using a particular piece of equipment that should have been replaced anyway. So the combination of these two things coming together uh, created a, a, an appalling tragedy, an appalling tragedy. Um, Arctic drilling, you've been a, uh, it's back in the news these days, drilling in the Arctic. Shell Loft uh, walked away from about $7 billion uh, going into the Arctic. You were critical of that venture. Um, are there some places that just we should not drill uh, for oil that should be off limits? Yes, uh, there's no doubt. The ones where their risk or reward is not uh, good enough, I think, is very simply that. Uh, you know, the risk to the environment, far too high, far too high, uh, unless you, because you can't recover from making uh, a mistake or something going wrong. Uh, the Arctic is one of those areas. Uh, BP had one issue there. So, as you, as you know, if you have a well on production and it's covered with snow and ice, which is thick enough, it could leak. And you may not know that until the snow and ice melts. Nowadays, you probably can. You can know about it, but you probably can't get at it. So you have to think about different ways of doing it. And why would you, therefore, get into the very risky business of, of drilling in those places? I think uh, standards change. Our understanding of what we should do changes and actually the way in which the industry is working. When the price of oil went up uh, very high in the late 2000s, uh, people decided that if they found oil wherever it was, uh, it would be good. So they drilled all over the world, all over the world. And actually a lot of those places, that oil is unnecessary, it will not be produced, it's too expensive or too hazardous to develop. Uh, and it shouldn't have been done. But with a lot of money, decisions get made in the wrong way. Would you include the Canadian tar sands in that? Uh, very much so. I was very much against uh, developing. Uh, I, spent, uh, I spent the late 70s in Canada as the head of BP's uh, tar sands, oil sands, oil sands task force. Uh, and I recommended that we stopped doing the business then.
As we record this, uh, Chile announced today that they're not going to host the UN Climate Summit in December because of political instability. There's a million people in the streets in Santiago, and they are not in the position to hold the important UN Climate Summit. So your take on the Paris process, the Paris Climate Accord, uh, and whether that is, you know, is meaningful um, political framework, the U.S. is on the side for now. Is Paris meaningful? Is it driving, does it, do corporate executives care about it? Uh, I can't speak for all corporate executives because a lot of them are uh, involved in the Paris Accord. Uh, but I think uh, what was so very uh, insightful about the Paris Accord is it was based on effectively peer pressure, uh, that you could say what you were going to do as long as you did what you said you were going to do, it was fine. Otherwise, everybody would say, you know, you're letting the side down. So it, 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 it decided at last to give up the totally unrealistic view that the world should be governed by one system. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so this, I think, was very insightful. Now, but it also, I think, recognized that it took everybody to move to make something happen. And so some people are falling behind, some people are opting out, uh, Mr. Trump. Uh, other people are achieving their goals. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, I think... Not, not many achieving their goals. Lots uh, of people some, are slacking. Some, some are. Some are achieving. One or two, I think. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, some, that's some. Yeah, Any some. more than one is some. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, uh, but, but some are. Uh, and uh, I think, so it, it made a step forward, but nothing like enough, I think. Is Brexit going to impact the UK, UK climate uh, priorities, UK climate initiatives? And your view I, I, on Brexit? I doubt that very much. Uh, I think that will carry on. Uh, Brexit will, um, will not, I think, affect very much the climate uh, goals of the UK. Because there's bipartisan support. There's bipartisan support. There's an independent commission. Uh, you know, flesh has to be put on the bones of the targets. Uh, but I think there are some very exciting schemes. Actually, for carbon capture and storage, there are some real possibilities uh, in the UK that might actually move ahead very quickly. If you're just joining us at Climate One, my guest is John Brown, former CEO of BP and author of Make, Think, Imagine, Engineering the Future of Civilization. I'm Greg Dalton. We're going to go to our lightning round where I'm just going to mention a noun and get your first subliminal, unfiltered reaction, the first <coughs> thing that comes into your mind. First one is hydrogen-powered cars. Uh, long term. The statement, I want my life back. Uh, someone who used to work for me. <laughs> that would be, yeah, your successor, Tony Hayward. Uh, climate activist Greta Thunberg. Uh, interesting. Murray Energy. Don't know. America's largest privately held coal company, headed by Trump supporter Robert Murray, filed for bankruptcy uh, this week. Uh, last one, association, a just transition. Not actually possible. True or false, uh, oil companies have lied to investors and the public about climate change. Uh, both true and false. True or false, investors in oil stocks will one day lose a lot of money when climate reality is priced into those shares. Uh, probably lost most of it already. 
True or false, engineers save more lives than doctors. Absolutely true. Lift, I, I, I lifted that from your book. Um, true or false, oil companies employ proportionally more women and people of color than clean energy firms. Uh, that can't be true. At Bloomberg actually did a story uh, by Lynn Duan that that is true, thinking that, that um, oil and gas companies have long, they're large, they actually have programs to recruit people. They found, this one Bloomberg study found that clean energy companies are less gender and color diverse. If it's U.S. oil companies, maybe, globally? Less so, sure, yeah, outside Including the U.S. Including state um, companies? Sure. Okay. Fair enough. I guess that was sort of U.S. focused. True or false? Facebook is a social menace. Uh, that's true. Last one. Uh, I think you already answered this, but uh, like bacteria, human civilization is fated to grow exponentially and then fall into terminal decline. That is false. Okay. Let's give him a round for getting through the, the lightning round. Mm. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Jackie Garcia, and I would like to know if oil companies are truly concerned about our planet, why do they not invest all of their profits in research and development to help solve the climate crisis? It seems to me the reason is this. They've got uh, a business model in their heads, which is roughly the following. They produce oil and gas, and they pay very large dividends on that basis. Uh, and that's what they believe they should continue to do. What is left over is then used either for research, more research, and nowadays a little bit of it for uh, investment in different forms of energy. Some of that money is going to have to be used now for decarbonization. Next question, welcome. Yeah, thank you. My name is Mary. Um, the title of your book is Make, Think, Imagine, I think, and um, you're an engineer. So as an engineer, I'm asking you, what would, what would it take to make a Manhattan Project to solve climate change? Well, I think uh, there have been a lot of discussions on this. Uh, there would have to be uh, nation by nation. We may get some uh, people to come along, but I think they are nation by nation. What I remember uh, is the uh, device called ARPA, the Advanced uh, Research Projects Agency, which was invented after uh, the Sputnik. It had a very simple reason for living, uh, which was making America ascendant in engineering and make it possible to go to the moon. If you had a target, which is we will get to zero carbon and we will pull together all these functional activities, uh, then I think we could make some very interesting breakthroughs. If we could attack everything from the weight of everything we use through to the energy that we use uh, to move around and make light and make heat, then I think we could make a big dent into this. I'm very keen that the UK should do that. I've been very clear that if we could really pull together the organisations of these disparate uh, areas of development and so forth and divert some of the government funding to this, it has to be more than matched, doubly matched by industry, otherwise it, it really won't be big enough. 
then I think we could create some significant breakthroughs, some significant breakthroughs. You've been listening to a Climate One conversation with John Brown, former CEO of British Petroleum, former president of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and author of the new book, Make, Think, Imagine, Engineering the Future of Civilization. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.